delude each other, we, we say as samanas, determine not to do that. But if you if you're taking it personally, then you just become suppressed. You're afraid of power. You're afraid of your energies, so you just suppress them. You, you and then you get all kinds of unpleasant illnesses and emotional blockages. <coughs> so that's where the the mindfulness is the way out. To, to be to be able to uh, reflect and know how to what to do, what not to do, how to relax, how to tense, how to relax, how to be at ease, when to when to do, when not to do. That's through mindfulness. Where when we're suppressed and anxious and worried. And all these kind of things, we we never we're always in the state of doubt, uncertainty. We're never quite sure what we're supposed to do. And either we overreact, we tend to go to one extreme by blowing up and upsetting people, or or exaggerating things, or we we uh, suppress and we we just shrink up and and uh, hold everything down. The British tend to more be suppressed, don't they? British posture is more like this. The Americans <laughs> more go towards exaggeration and and uh, going over the top. And <laughs> these are cultural tendencies. What, what's happening to Heather is that, I mean, she's, when she came here, you know, she was, she was holding everything down. And when you looked at her, she first came here, she looked, I thought she was uh, kind of uh, mentally retarded. She looked kind of like a, a, she had Down syndrome, like this. And she was frightened, she wouldn't come near me. And um, so then, uh, it, and now it's all kind of going the other way. Right now she's she's uh, exploding. She's no longer afraid to come here. <laughs> <laughs>
But it's uh, to find a balance. You see, that's what we all have to do. We're all mad in a way. Until we find that perfect balance. That's why I encourage you to explode, deliberately explode. <coughs> to, to, it's a cathartic <coughs> explosion. Go out in the field and just yell your head off. <laughs> no, turn to series and go out and just yell your head off and scream. <laughs> and so polite and contained all the time. And there, uh, one should. You know, copy don't need to just go and yell his head off. <laughs> I do, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and be able to bring up in your mind all the things you're frightened of. Say them and listen to them. So that you can you can just hear these things, like the things you're most frightened to think or say. Because <clears throat> that's what Heather's doing right now. <laughs> but she's out of control. She's not listening. She's not reflecting <laughs> on it. But it's, uh, it's just, it's, just uh, it's out of control. She has no perspective on it. She believes it all, all the rubbish. Where if you, if, you, uh, if you deliberately think the rubbish, if you're willing to, to let rubbish be a conscious experience, then it, but you're, it's done with the intention to see Dhamma. So you're, you're, your intention is right. You're, it's the Buddha seeing the Dhamma rather than me being horrible, then, <clears throat> then you can witness it and you can let it go. I used to do that a lot in the, because I'd get terribly, terribly suppressed in the, in the Thai system, Thai monastery. You just, you just, everything has to be done. You're trying to, you're so afraid you're going to offend somebody. And so you're, you're always worried about what people are thinking. And so you, you just get this incredible anxiety of what people, the ties will think. They might think you're not a good monk. So you, so you, you feel, at least this is how I reacted, I became very, very tense. And then uh, I would go out in a place where there weren't any, there weren't any people, and I just uh, <coughs> let off steam. <laughs> Having been in the Navy for four years helps. <laughs> <laughs> Milita naval uh, military life is its disadvantage, also advantages in the, for letting off steam. <coughs> I think the Navy was an excellent teacher, so 
<coughs> so I'd go out and I'd just, I'd swear and say all the things I shouldn't say, think all the thoughts I, a good monk shouldn't think, and then I'd, and I'd listen and I'd just keep going and going until it eventually just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> there was not the slightest interest in that because one didn't one was one didn't one wasn't believing it like it wasn't done in anger or you weren't trying to <clears throat> like send bad messages to anyone. In fact you made your intention very clear that <clears throat> this was was a just for release of that tension, for dharma, for witnessing, not for harming anyone. The intention was not to harm, even though I would mentally be bringing up maybe violent uh, thoughts towards others. It wasn't with no intention to, to act on that, but to witness this, this suppressed anger as a, a, in a conscious form, rather than just keep reacting to it. I had a lot of anger, and so uh, hatred, resentments, a lot of resentment. And I keep it going until finally it just, it just fizzled out. And then you'd feel this tremendous, I'd feel this sense of relief. And I could go back and be a good monk again. Is that something like the primal scream? Probably, yes. <laughs> I didn't, I'm not a screamer, but I, I'm a cursor and swearer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have to do it when you know that you're not going to be upsetting anyone. Because you can't do it if, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be all that verbal. You know, not like you have to say these things so much as, as to deliberately think. And just like, like saying things over and over, like I had a very, uh, you know, a lot of aversion to myself. So I just, just uh, say over and over again, I, I hate myself, I hate you, and I can't stand this. And I, and I just keep repeating over and over again, you're no good, you're, you're hopeless. And I keep saying it, and every time I would I'd start to get tired of it, I keep pushing it. Because I saw Ajahn Chah exercise a woman one day in a monastery. <laughs> That's where I got the idea. <laughs> I thought, they were all possessed in a way, and he just kept at her, this village woman, just possessed by, by spirits, and, and he just kept at her all the time. And she's sitting there on the floor, screaming, and, 
And he says, and the demons are eating your liver. And And he says, you're not screaming loud enough. (laughs) Louder. And he'd he'd work her up, and he's the most horrendous. And he'd be sitting there smiling, you know. They're ripping your intestines out. (laughs) Just absolutely screaming and yelling. and, And he'd keep her going for a long, long time. And then, uh, then she, uh, then she, he, he wore her out. She just became so tired, physically tired. Then he stopped. She just couldn't, couldn't have any more energy left. She's totally kind of wiped out. And then, then he gave her the five, pre- the three refuges and the five precepts. <laughs> so it was a very skillful thing to do. But uh, that's exorcism. When I would think, what is the thought I most don't want to think, or most frightened to think? What kind of thoughts really are most frightening to me that I, that I, I would not want to ever be thinking? What is the worst thing I can think? What is the most evil thought? that a man could ever have? What is the vilest and dirtiest thought that a man could ever have? What is the uh, brutal, most horrendous possibility for a human being? And so I keep, keep questioning myself and, and, and bringing these into, so that I'm really aware of, of uh, the forces of, of that, that are human. And then uh, I'm not just kind of trying to be nice and, and not be that way, but I'm actually investigating evil. But it's because, but I'm in the refuge, understand. It's not being irresponsible. I'm in the, completely in the refuge of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So an action and speech, there's no way I'm going to act or speak on that to anyone else. If it's speech, it's merely a, like a cathartic speech where nobody's not directed at anybody or anything. It's just for listening to, to see it as anicca dukkha nata. And you bring up a lot of uh, really basic fears in your guts. And, uh, and, uh, and just being able to think uh, what the thoughts that you're most frightened of they lose their power to, to frighten you. <laughs> and you think after a while they become just perfunctory thoughts. They mean nothing. They lose their kind of, their power, their gravity, their importance. Like a thought, it, it deludes you by making you think it's a really, it's horrible <coughs> or it's frightening. It has a, it has a quality to it that, that you react to. But when you bring a, th- a thought up as just a thought, then it, no matter what its quality might be, after a while the quality is not so important, it's just seen as a kind of thing that goes on and on. That's why repetitions are so good. 
to say like like uh, like like my nature was to have a lot of self aversion, but to dismiss it. So you'd you'd always be in this state of you know this the feeling this kind of inner uh, inner feeling that that you were kind of worthless. But then you know that'd be silly because up here you know you know don't be silly. And uh, and then, but then a lot of how what was actually pushing you around in life was that feeling, <coughs> and yeah, so that, and yet on the intellectual plane, I knew it was silly. It was a silly thing, and and I could just dismiss it as, as don't be silly. And then. Uh, And then you know, because one one tended to be so believe so much in the, in what one was in the intellectual, the rational mind. This is an emotional thing. So I I started working for that side, with just listening to this thing in me that kept that kept an, a kind of inner tirade going of criticism towards myself until I really got to know it as merely conditioned. Why do you think I'm so absolutely sure about conditions? <laughs> do you think I'm just putting it on? <laughs> but it's an it, 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 investigation. So you know, like, like I know an evil thought is a condition of the mind. To me it's a dhamma. It's not nothing, it's merely a thing that arises and ceases. So one doesn't have valuable thoughts. Not that I'm suppressing them, it's just that the, 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 the karma with that, with that is, has been dealt with. This is where you, you need to have that foundation of Buddha Dhamma Sangha and know what you're doing. Like if you're still screaming and having cathartic experiences with a strong with a with an ego attitude, well then then you, you, you go back and you'll think, Oh, I'm getting nowhere again. As soon as it starts up <coughs> or you 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 hope to get rid of things, you really are doing it to annihilate your feelings, to get rid of it, rather than to understand it. You see what I mean? So, uh, if you do any of these things, cathartic uh, experiences or, or therapeutic uh, things, with, it, with still from an ego that wants to get rid of something and you don't know it, then you, you get kind of maybe relief in moments, but then it starts over again. This is this is where the the uh, the wisdom faculties, the way out of suffering, wisdom, sati and panya. <coughs> and the so that you're you're contemplating them as dhamma, not in order to get rid of them, but to understand. <coughs> That's, that's like in the Sangha, you, your goal is Nibbana. 
trust in that goal, to realize the truth, to be free from delusion. Your refuge is Buddha Dhamma Sangha. That's that's your support. That's your refuge. Then the then you can look at the demons, the devils, all the sleazy things, the conditions, and all the things that you may be really averse to and, and frightened of, you can look at as dhammas, because you're not you're willing to, to look at that which you maybe spent your life trying not to see, not to notice. So that that is why why it's so important to 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 develop this sense of refuge. And any form of, of like like just not feeling things or just being dull and uh, or just being tense. These are these are things to really work with rather than just trying to get rid of. Like if you if you feel just dull or, or depressed or heavy, it's it's something to to work with to really see the Dhamma of it. But make your make uh, but do it only in the in the in, with the attitude of a refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. For realization, not for annihilation. Like this is very important because some of you, are, you know, you understand it all very well. The practice on the on the on one level, but on another level, you there's something not coming through. Figure it out quite nicely. That and uh, doesn't take too much to get to understand the theory and to even uh, get some good results. <coughs> but uh, say on on levels of that we're really frightened of. Uh, you know, like like I think some of you really want to be devadas. You really want to be lovely kind of ethereal creatures <coughs> rather than than really see Dhamma. So I mean we're trying to live a life based on kind of aesthetics and and uh, good taste and good manners and morality and all that, which is is um, you know, makes us turns us into kind of like David Arts, angels. Which is certainly better than being a devil, but it's not liberating. The angelic realm is still a realm of the death. (laughs) 
really, uh, you know, like investigate the most obvious things, like what what is a man or a woman? If you if you have a woman's body, really contemplate that, not not idealize it, but really uh, contemplate what that is as a as a karmic experience. Because all these things affect the mind. The war in the Gulf and the, the bodies we have. Everything's affecting us. It's a totally sensitive universal system. So the, the transcendent realization is through a, a profound insight into all that is subject to arising and subject to ceasing. So that the, that the whole psychic realm and, and material realm is seen like in the, in the psychic realm, you have you have all those those uh, stages and the the pretas and the uh, demons to the four maharajas, uh, the yama devas and the uh, what is it the tavadingsa yama to sita. Uh, <coughs> Nimaravati and Parinimitnavasavati Devalokas and then you get into the radiant states the radiations of the Brahma realms the Brahmakayaka realms and then the Arupajanas you get into this, 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 so just into uh, neither perception nor non-perception so uh, this is this can be regarded as all psychic experience and and uh, from the human uh, animal uh, preta, the hungry ghost, to the uh, <coughs> demonic forms, and and up to the, the above the the human realm. But it's not as the human realm. Your refuge is in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in in mindfulness, wisdom, in knowing. In seeing the truth, all that is subject to rising is subject to ceasing. And any of those realms, even the, the, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception, or the Brahma realms, as radiant and as beautiful as they are, they're still psychic, they're still conditioned, still dependent. So that's why the Buddha <coughs> taught a transcendent path rather than a, a, a refinement of consciousness. Because he did, the, the, his six ascetic years were, were definitely developing the refinements of concentration, psychic experience, only to realize the unsatisfactoriness of it. And that's one thing that our human state, it, it we can't, when you, I suppose, if you're reborn as, as Mahabrahma, where you have to live so many million years, that must seem like a long time. But when you touch upon anything as radiant as Mahabrahma in a human form, it goes by very quickly, doesn't it? Any kind of radiant mental states just uh, flash through very quickly even though we, we can develop those practices, uh, we, can't, they, we can't maintain them for very long. So, 
this is a great gift actually that we can't because we we'd all have settled for being Mahabrahmas. We could. But we but the Buddha's teaching is really one that, that gets us out of the whole mess, the whole deluded realm. And then when you're, when you're investigating Dhamma, as I said before, when note, note like the, like say in a, say a feeling of anger, and use the body a lot, go to the feeling of, in, in, the, in the guts, in the heart, try to, to bring more attention up to the heart, like note the, the, the instinctual gut level of intelligence, because that's intelligent also. Instinctual instinct is a, is a kind of basic intelligence. So then it's nothing to despise or to put down it. It's too dirty. <laughs> but it is, a, it is energy, powerful energy. And then the, then the heart level, this is where we tend to be most blind. The heart haven't opened. We don't we haven't been able to love anyone or anything. So we 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 can have ideas about love and romantic idealism. But if we don't really develop the heart, then we're stuck in this kind of idealized romantic world with instinct. So you find, <laughs> you find uh, all kinds of problems arising from that. Because why, why like AIDS and all this kind of sexual promiscuity and the, and the, all these uh, this this kind of tendency to just to use sex with with an ideal and uh, from the brain really and uh, and and of course the actual operation is on the instinctual plane, the heart is, is almost bypassed. It's a heart bypass. <laughs> Maybe that's the operation of the age. <laughs> so, so that's why we, you know, when we bypass the heart, then you then you, then one never really, uh, one is always going to be caught in, in, in reactive, in, in ideas and in, and, and in suppression of instinctual energies or in indulgence in them. Like the kind of hippie and free love movements where we're exalting instincts and uh, making them the, the whole reason for our life is to be completely instinctual again, primitive. It was a romanticizing, romantic image. Because we can't be primitive again, we can't 
we can't be like Amazonian Indians or Australian Aborigines. Uh, as much as we might want to romanticize and think and hate our own society because it, it's made us in, given us this dilemma, we can't we can't become primitive like Stone Age human beings again. We have to. We have to develop from where we are and recognize the good quality of where we are. Like in, say, in uh, as much as you can blame or criticize modern materialism and modern education and socialism and all these, this, the things of the West that we tend to uh, see so many faults in, it also has, has, has developed our uh, intellectual capacities to a great extent and our ability to acquire knowledge is fantastic now too much computers and everything we, we know so much our knowledge is so available so we we have a ability to, to, to get the, the ideas across now you know and you have mass media to do it with and like the Aquarian Age ideals, one can, those didn't come out of the cave or the American Indian tribe. So that this, this uh, recognize that you're, in some ways we have great advantages also. It's not just a, a black picture and romanticizing a, a golden age gone by or waiting for the golden age to come. But to really, really see the golden age here and now. Like, you say, the, the figure of Kuan Yin and uh, these, these images that convey love, softness, uh, compassion. These are ideas in our heads aren't they there? We can certainly appreciate them as ideals. But to, but, and to, to, and not to be just uh, superficial and sentimental about the ideals, you, you have to come to terms with the, with the instinctual energies. And that's bringing up more, and releasing that, the kind of tensions and, and blockages in your guts to where the energy comes up through your heart, you feel a sense of fullness, imjai, sense of being full and and uh, at ease, and uh, where where metta karuna mudita upeka aren't just ideas we're trying to become. I'm trying to practice metta. That that tendency to feel that you have to you should be practicing metta, that falls away. And that what's left is real metta. So that's where you need to know, like, like, what, like last night's talk, where is metta as a, as, a, as a here and now experience, rather than, well, I'll be kind to everybody, I'm going to practice metta today. And, and it all becomes uh, set in a, in a vow, in an idea, but but try to see it in its most ordinary way, like we're 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 trying to recognize 
metta here and now rather than trying to become someone who has it. So that you're like with with bringing up these maybe fears in, into conscious form. That's a kind of metta. That you're, you're actually allowing something maybe very bad or frightening into consciousness and letting it go. I like the image of the prison, you know, where where the repressed person is like a prison. And in these kind of wretched prisoners you keep inside, inside your heart all the time. And they start, they keep yelling, I want out. And you, oh God, they're going to take me over. <laughs> and they just about get the, the, the gate open and you slam it down on their fingers again. <laughs> so, yeah. So these poor wretched creatures are just kind of simmering inside me, smoldering away. <laughs> and you're wondering, why is life so difficult? <laughs> <laughs> so then they, you open the, the, the gate and they all start coming out. So that you, when, when they start coming out, then you think, I'm going crazy, they're all getting away, they're going to take me over. And uh, because you, you just see them as, you're just reactive to it, you're not, you don't understand it, you don't understand what it is, you're just reacting to the, to the way they look. But when, when you can actually let them go, then it, they go, they, they're going away, you're liberating those wretched creatures that you've been persecuting all these years. Life imprisonment. And then you're letting them go, giving them, it's amnesty. Giving them amnesty. It's a metta practice. Metta international. But do uh, be cautious about where you scream. Like when, when this, when the life here, like a, a retreat like this, two months of meditation, and that's why I, in the beginning of the retreat I was trying to encourage you to really look at what the whole idea of a retreat does to your mind. Because that can, that can really set the tone for, for your retreat. Like you think, two months of silence and retreat means I have to sit and and this sense of being oppressed, again, I've got to do something. Two months, they expect me to do something. And 
I've got to, and I want to get somewhere. So that you already the, the conditions for misery you've established without even realizing it. Because that's why it's to really see that a retreat is is not a kind of challenge in a in an ordeal that I'm putting you through, but but as a, it's an opportunity to to contemplate. This retreat I've made very loose, just so you you wouldn't have any excuse to think that that there's that you know I'm kind of pushing you along, or that you or, or I'm kind of forcing you, or trying, that you that I want you to really be able to identify the kind of compulsive tendency to be compulsive about it, or to have uh, have a reactive idea like you've had maybe last year's retreat or retreats you've had before, you keep, you know, you think, oh, I have to go through that, or there's this sense of, oh, I can't stand it, or maybe there's a sense of, I'm really going to do something, I'm really going to get my practice together. All these can be seen as, as uh, reactions to the idea of uh, winter's retreat at Amravati, or whatever way you, whatever a reaction you do have. So then make your intention for this retreat, try to get your intention to to realize truth, to practice and to realize truth, but not practice as a kind of uh, obsessive obligation to do it, because then it, practice becomes, uh, becomes oppressive to us, and we don't even see what we're doing. We don't, we can't see that that uh, what what is actually motivating us. So that your this this retreat to you know to use this time to investigate and to to develop skillful means according to your nature, according to within the limits of the vidhai. <laughs> So that you, you have, <laughs> uh, you know, skillful means. Like I've been giving examples of my own, how I do things, uh, how I figure things out. Now I'm not saying you have to do it like I do. I mean, I'm no way implying that you should do what I did, but it's merely an, an example of, of, because I don't, John didn't tell me to do these things. He didn't tell me to go out in, uh, when I got up, uptight and tense and miserable. To, he didn't say, oh, Sumato, go out and scream your head off and curse. Nobody ever told me to do that. In fact, I thought I wasn't supposed to do that. But I also realized that if I didn't do that, <laughs> I'd just, you know, I'd just be an ongoing miserable person. So, so then I thought, then I reflected on the Dhamma. The Buddha said, intention is important. What's your intention? Is my intention to harm anyone? No, I don't. I have no desire, no interest in harming anybody or anything. So, uh, so then, is just thinking, is that 
immoral? Are you breaking the sila by thinking these thoughts? No. You aren't breaking the sila till you act or you speak. But this speaking, say, like cursing, isn't isn't uh, isn't directed at anybody. So an intention is to see it as dhamma. So that's that's allowed to see it as dhamma because your intention is not is not a bad one, really an upaya. So then you you trust in that and then you can then you, sometimes like I, I'd think uh, like I'd t- one time I had a real real, I had a lot of uh, resentments, bitterness about, toward my father. So I, I got into this and I started thinking about bringing up every possible memory and and uh, I'd be listening, and then, and then I'd, and then I'd get stuck in, in, in I'd go into crying jags. I'd find myself. Uh, my father never really loved me, and I start really crying. And then my, my uh, mental, my mind would say, "Oh, stupid!" <laughs> <laughs> and then. My father never really loved me. <laughs> and and then, don't be stupid, this is ridiculous. Because this side really didn't like that at all. You know, this is this is really wimpish. And just the thought, my father never really loved me. It was a real wimpy, whiny thing to think, isn't it? And then the then the emotion this kind of anguish crying. And then I began to notice that every time I think that thought, I'd have this anguish crying. I think, oh, it's just it's just a habit. It's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. It's just it's like you've been programmed. My father never did. <laughs> My father never really loved me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> I know that's really that's interesting, you know, to to know that that's just uh, where you were making such a big thing about that, you know, the the kind of gravity of feeling you've never been loved by your father. They kind of that's really, you know, ruined my life. That's a heavy, <laughs> he's to blame. And then, then that goes into this this whole uh, kind of melodrama, and then <coughs> just by keeping it on that level, I, I think it's merely a, a conditioned reaction, a, a perception that I acquired probably at a young age. Then, when when the mind was released from that, and you no longer you, and you saw it and understood it, then I began to think. Then I realized that my father did love me. <laughs> uh, I just thought he didn't. That was all. <laughs>
when you when you find these like these various uh, feelings of, of being unloved, or or are that you're not likable or not lovable or something, these, these are signs that that uh, I mean your rational mind can can say, oh, don't be silly, you're just being a silly fool about all this. And because you can, because your rational mind, of course, doesn't feel anything. Your brain doesn't feel anything. You don't feel anything with your brain, and with a thought. So, so when you're stuck up in your with your ideas in your head, of course, you're you're totally insensitive. So, the sensitive emotional nature is just silly and foolish, wimpy and wet. Soppy and weak, flabby, like that. <laughs> Sound effect. It's by notice, observing this emotional, uh, these emotions, not judging them. But so you're letting them, you're allowing you, yourself to be conscious with emotion, with emotional feeling. Like, my father never really brought up a strong emotion. A cry, a fear, an anguished cry. Yet my 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 mind, my unfeeling brain said, "Don't be so silly. You're a grown man. It doesn't matter. It's over. Forgive him. You should forgive. You should be forgiving. A good Buddhist monk forgives. Share merit with your father. Forgive him. Forgive them, for they know not what they do." <laughs> 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 but if you but that that that's that's good advice, definitely, you know, it's not that that's wrong. But notice where it's coming from. It's coming from your unfeeling mind, from your from your intellect, from your from, from your rational mind, in your ideal mind. And so, it's it's got something important to say. It gives good advice. But remember, it doesn't feel anything. So in the in, in the say in the heart, like this feeling of not being loved is a heart problem, isn't it? Because we, you know, uh, ultimately it doesn't really matter as a, on, in the theoretical, but as a, as a, uh, as a uh, way, as a suffering of life, this is, this is where we suffer, is in the heart, we don't suffer from the brain. 
we, 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 the brain, the thoughts all go and they kind of influence our, our emotions. <coughs> so this is where you go to the, to the, to the heart, say, for this sense, for the, for the uh, development of metta karuna mudita upeka, emotional nature. Not to pretend or to create anything, but to re- free the heart from these, uh, these unresolved uh, uh, emotions. And it was really, really obvious. It was just like you start thinking, my father never really loved me. It was just, it was so obvious that it was thus the, like the Pavlovian dog. And and after a while it became just meaningless, you know, because the the gravity of it had been taken away. It it terribly important quality of this is me and my father. That suddenly that kind of didn't seem. After you did it a few times, it it didn't have the same power. And you saw I saw it very much as a, just an emotional reaction, a habit. So this way you 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 can it's it's you can uh, understand it's through through conscious mind see the experience of consciousness means that we can uh, we have to bring our karmic our karma into conscious form so that we we and but conscious with mindfulness wisdom rather than just con- because we are conscious but ignorant we're consciousness with a vicha we're conscious with a vicha so then that descends to build habits around being conscious so you become conditioned creature reactive creature like the dog but in uh, so but the, the Buddha <coughs> mind then is is training the conscious experience so that what we, rather than becoming habituated to things, we're bringing the habits into consciousness because habits are become unconscious after a while. You do something even you're not even conscious of it anymore because it's be a, a habit. So you can you can do all kinds of things and not be conscious of what you're doing because of, of the habitual pattern established. But as you, as you train to really use mindfulness to, to notice these habits, these fears and desires, and, uh, and to allow them to be a conscious experience, <coughs> then you can let them go. So the, the first noble truth is understanding suffering. The second noble truth is letting go of suffering. But it's only till you, and understanding doesn't mean the head, doesn't figuring it out uh, through a definition in a dictionary, but through actually uh, accepting and knowing, investigating these various conditions as dhammas, which is you, you're aware of them, you're, you're, you're patient with them, you're accepting them, you're enduring. They are what they are, 
and then they're here, and then they're not here, and you're aware when they're not here. You're aware when they're here and when they go. The cessation. Third noble truth. Realize it. Realization of cessation. Really enjoy this retreat. Don't make this retreat into a, into an obligation or an onerous duty or or a, a, an ordeal for yourself or to prove that you can do it or that you can sit for hours on end or that you you can kill your kilesas and all this kind of <laughs> don't uh, don't get into that into the into the view of a retreat as on, on that without seeing what you're doing if you if you do if you're feeling tensions and and uptight and this retreat is just really uh, you know if you're getting dull you can become addicted to retreats we can just you just develop the ability to go on retreats retreat junkies be a retreat junkie, so you just you just become one who's used to going on retreat. It can be another habit you acquire is retreat. But uh, that's not the way out of that's not enlightenment. Just to be able to sit for hours. And the Dajan Chai used to say if that was true then these these battery chickens would all be enlightened. Also, to use, you know, we have this reflective mind to be able to, to, to develop your upayas, your own skillful means, according to your, your character. You know, like, like we have our own characters, and have to know, like, what works for me isn't, isn't necessarily going to work for you. I'm not saying that, that what I do is, is, is good for everybody. So, but then we have to know what, what kind of, where you're kind of, uh, where you tend to get lost, where your weakness is, where you're, what you're frightened of, what you what tends to be the place that you're most vulnerable or most sensitive, and, and then study that and, and figure out what to do about it, knowing the theory that if, you know, if, if it's, if you, you use you use the balance system, so like like say the the the, the cursing <coughs> catharsis was a balance to the to the impeccability of this very fine bhikkhu, the the example, the exemplary bhikkhu, who who kept all the rules and uh, was very serious and dedicated. That was sometimes the only Western bhikkhu in the monastery. And everybody was admiring me. American monk? I didn't think Americans could ever do this. 
I thought they only could kind of ride around on motorcycles. <coughs> that the American GIs were had a bit their base in Newborn at that time. Just kind of big GIs on these super duper Harley Davidson bicycles <laughs> zooming through Warren and Newborn, you know, these these dazzling bar girls. <laughs> <laughs> That was the image of the American, and then, and I, the people were amazed, and I liked it. I liked you know, being. I mean, I'm I'm a Leo, so you like to sit there and look good. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the, but the result was that it, that uh, there's a lot of of uh, resentment. Then after a while, I just I just began to feel like. Like, this is the most uptight, like I've just been kind of, there's no life in me at all. It's just sitting there and uh, really quite miserable. And uh, it was, uh, it just got very, I'm just really unhappy in my mind because I could, you know, you can be an actor and show off for a while, but if you can't, you know, that's only a few moments out of the day, and the rest <laughs> you're stuck with with all your fears and doubts. So you, you, you know, you when when nobody's looking, you kind of collapse. You go when when the people come, you when they're gone, you. So then, but contemplating Dhamma, I began to to see that. That what I was doing was I was trying to be too good. I was trying, you know, I was, I was acting. I was, I was acting the role of a good bhikkhu because I'd get a lot of praise for it and uh, a lot of attention, a lot of rewards. Get a lot of rewards for being a good bhikkhu. And uh, and I wanted, and it wasn't all selfish. I wanted to make people happy because they all looked so happy and and. They, they, I could see that they really enjoyed seeing me as such a good bhikkhu. I like, I like making people happy. <laughs> a very nice thing to be able to do. But it is still uh, not dealing with, uh, with uh, the way things are. I was merely a super surface bhikkhu. So that then I uh, when I began to look more closely, I just began a lot of resentment, negativity. I'd, I'd find myself sometimes just, you know, like waking up and just hating everybody. I'd go into the, and, and there we had to get up at three in the morning and uh, go into the meditation hall, and I just feel so much hatred for everyone. And, uh, and then I go into the act and you know, go through the motions and you know, never tell anyone that I felt this way. Didn't have any confidence, confidants. I told one monk one time, and one monk who could speak a little English, I told him, I start, I kind of let off steam and he was so shocked, he went and told Ajahn Chah. <laughs> Ajahn Chah called me and you know, it started kind of having a go at me, so I, I decided I'd never tell anyone. 
because nobody seemed to understand what was the problem. So, because I didn't mean anything I said, I was just letting off steam. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I decided that maybe I better not tell anyone because it, you know, I was in a different culture and they wouldn't understand what I'm doing. So, so I started doing it uh, with myself. And then I kept, because I did have the insight, I think, that if everything is impermanent and not self, then these things, these, these, uh, all this anger and resentment is, is the same thing. Why not be able to see it as, a, as Dhamma rather than, than, because the desire to get rid of it was, was Vipavadana. <coughs> desire to annihilate these bad, this, this, these bad uh, feelings was uh, Vipavadana. So I thought, yeah, that's true. Desire to get rid of the kilesas is Vipavadana. Never thought of that before. <laughs> so I, because in Thailand they speak like, kill your kilesas. So I, I started, you know, and that to an American is, you know, the cruise missiles and the <coughs> tomahawk and all that, in that they're annihilate the uh, the Iraqis. That's what you do as an American. You send it, you've got these high-tech minds. <coughs> so you you zoom in on the on the Kilesas with these uh, high-powered rockets only to find yourself exploding. <coughs> No, that obviously that, that wasn't the way because just my, my this kind of high-powered suppression was something, obviously the result was, was horrendous. So then you, you I figured out that, that it was through this, this bringing into consciousness because that made sense and that works. If you, if you, uh, and, and, and according to the Buddhist teachings, it's in accord with the Dhamma. So, so that you, that's why, say, there's no offense, moral offense, vinaya offense against bad thoughts. You don't have to confess thinking bad thoughts to anyone. Where we do, if we do, if we act on them or speak, if I say, if I curse you with anger, then it's an offense against the Vinaya. But if I, if, it, if it's just a thought or in a form for reflection or as Dhamma, then it's not, not an offense. Because there's no, the intention is different. Remember the Buddha was aiming always at, to know your, to make your intention very clear. Like the intention to realize truth is done from, from here, from your brain make it rational and clear, precise from your rational mind. That's what it's for. To realize the truth. And, and then take the refuges and, and, and uh, contemplate those refuges so that they, you have this sense of, of having, having the confidence and the, the willingness to look at everything. Because if Buddhism is as your refuge, then there's nothing that can harm you. So even the demons, the devils, 
that might come in or might appear in your consciousness are dhammas, they arise, they cease. But if you don't have that refuge and you're still operating from a kind of ego that's trying to get rid of your problems, then it's uh, you still you still uh, you know operating from the basic delusion that that creates suffering. Like the the image of deliberate thought and watching the space around thought. That, that's how I developed that technique. I could take neutral thoughts and just be aware of the thought and the and not thought. As in the like that's the that's the paradigm, isn't it? Yeah. I am a bhikkhu. Blank. Or I, the blank now, I am a bhikkhu, blank. So that, and you're listening. You know, you're you're aware of that of that uh, intention to speak of the thought of the thought of the thought. I am a neutral thought. Doesn't not highly emotive. I am, it's a it's a conventional reality. So I am a bhikkhu, but you're listening, in your you're listening. So you you hear the the sound, of silence. You're aware, and there's no thought. Then you deliberately think, and then it ends, and there's no thought. You can even go I, blank, am blank. So what you is you're realizing. No thought. You're 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 seeing thought and no thought. And then you can you can examine that as a as that's a pattern to to observe. So you begin to to feel more confident in realizing desire and desirelessness. Or. Uh, grasping and non-grasping. Uh, greed and non-greed, hatred and non-hatred, delusion and non-delusion. So then, then even non-delusion, non-hatred, non-greed, desirelessness, non-grasping are conscious. You're conscious. There's, they're in a conscious, so that there's a and realization is possible. It's no longer theoretical. <laughs> Um, if it's just a theory in your brain, then it's it's only a th- it remains a, th- a theory only, and it's not a realization. But realization is is on the plane where of reflection, where you're seeing the condition and the unconditioned. You know that everything everything that you that you experience in this form has that pattern, isn't it? This room, when this visual. Consciousness. There's space and form. There's 
uh, silence and sound. There's thought and non-thought. There's odor and odorlessness. There's uh, feeling and non-feeling. Like pain, like if you have a pain, and then then notice non-pain. Not just take it for granted, but when there's no pain, say physical pain, if there's pain and then non-pain. So you're training, you're, you're, you're instructing consciousness with, with that universal pattern. That's a universal pattern. On the born with the unborn, the created with the uncreated. But we, we can observe it in, in the sensory realm that we're born into through being conscious. That's what consciousness allows us to know this pattern. Consciousness and uh, the universal intelligence, the Buddha. I used to think the spaces uh, between things, as in the spaces between words, that, that is unconditioned? No, I'm not, I'm saying it's, it's non-thinking. But it's the, the, but it's the pattern it's the same pattern, isn't it? We're just trying to, to note because the condition unconditioned is 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 wide and great, universal. Now we're looking at something very very here and now on a on a personal level of thinking. You see? So I take the pattern, the condition and the unconditioned, and um, but I'm not saying that the space between thoughts is the unconditioned, but it is. But the ability to realize non-thought and thought, because the thoughts are conditions, aren't they? They're, they're conditioned in you. Non-thought isn't conditioned by anything. That, that on, from ignorance anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, it's conditioned by maybe birth, but not by, but not by ignorance. So, so then you're you're working with the say the, the, <coughs> the condition and then the what for us is is uh, maybe the uh, what they call the the relative unconditioned. <laughs> but when you when you uh, when you realize that like non-thinking or non-desire, non-fear, non-greed, and all that, then. Then you, then the path is very clear, the eightfold path, because then you really know you re, you have that insight into how to practice. There's no doubt because you're because the the doubts always come from the thoughts. That's why all these academic Buddhist monks still doubt because they 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 just keep generating thoughts, <laughs> and so you just. And not with doubts, but if but if, so, if you if you uh, because you don't realize that the non-thought because I it, like I never I mean what well, I never realized non-thinking. I so I was I was just a obsessed thinker when I started meditation. I sit there the first couple of weeks, months, in fact, in the kuti, nonkai mind just rant. 
I used to say, shut up. I used to try to squeeze my head, you know. <laughs> and somebody came one time. I went over to Vientiane one day and uh, met this American over in Vientiane. And he said, how are you doing? I said, oh, hard work. I said, I'm trying to give up thinking. <laughs> he looked a bit bewildered. <laughs> because because the, the mind was just, you know, it'd just go on and on and on, rattle on. And then you'd get stuck in ruts. And so I'd get these really dumb thoughts. And you could sit there and you'd be practicing. If you read about the Vasudhi monk about the jhanas. And then this stupid thought would come. Gwen, what are you to me? <laughs> Gwen, what are you to me? Maybe this is important. Maybe I've got to find out. Gwen, Gwen, Gwen. Now, when I was in first grade, there was a Gwen. I didn't like her very much. <laughs> I started trying to analyze all this, and uh, uh, maybe I was, maybe I had an affinity with her, or maybe, uh, and so I started going on into analyzing it. But even after all that analyzing, I was sitting there, and then suddenly this dumb thought would start. So then I tried to squeeze it out of the mind, and and uh, and and then I then I'd have to keep holding it because I knew that the minute I I relaxed, when what are you to me would come back, <laughs> and it was haunting day and night. It just <laughs> And I, why can't I have an intelligent thought to be obsessed with? Why, why such a stupid one? And so, I mean, I hated the thought so much because it seemed so senseless and pointless to be sitting there, you know, and you're practicing Dhamma with an endless kind of recycling of the same thought. And so then I... But... <laughs> So then the, I became aware of the, of the desire to get rid of it and, uh, you know, this uh, incredible aversion. And, and then reading uh, about the Four Noble Truths, I saw, I saw that it was Vipa Vadanha. Then I was, I had incredible Vipa Vadanha, desire to get rid of that. And I was so obsessed with this desire to get rid of it. It was really, you know, it was it was obsessing my mind that it I couldn't get rid of it. it I, I increased its power that everywhere I went, you know, walking or wherever. I just oh, here it comes again. <laughs> 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 and so then, 
Then, then I started, then I thought, well, instead of trying to get rid of it, I'll just embrace it. When? what are you to me? And then I'd, I'd be aware of it as a thought, and I'd, I'd watch it, and by deliberately and accepting it, and, uh, and observing it, understanding it as a condition that arises and ceases, without intention to get rid of it. There is no, no desire to get rid of it anymore. It's just, it is what it is. I'm not saying it's even a dumb thought anymore. It's just what it is. It's that. And it, when it's present, it's present. When it's gone, it's gone. And there's a knowing of it. Present, then it's absent. So then that was, then the, that, that, that uh, obsessiveness disappeared. Never been a problem since. So, so just on those kind of experiences, you know, where you, you find, I mean, sometimes the most, you know, if you like to think of yourself as a kind of intelligent, mature man, you really don't like things like that. You know, you, you, you think you want to, you don't want to be stupid and silly or wimpy. My father never really loved me, and you don't want to be that way, you know, you have these ideals of being, you know, in control, and mature, not like that, intelligent, having intelligent thoughts, and, uh, rather than stupid ones. But that oftentimes is the reason why we'll have, why oftentimes very intelligent people will have very stupid thoughts. <laughs> Because it it's they suppress uh, stupidity. They never allow stupidity to be a conscious experience. It's never accepted. Your own stupidity, the stupidity that comes, stupid thoughts or foolishness, triviat, frivolousness or triviality. So, so because then the judge starts going, you start being having silly, foolish thoughts in your mind or feelings, and you. Can't be like that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a summoner. Trying to be act like this, 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 uh, this, uh, this ideal of a summoner. And and the ideal summoner doesn't have foolish thoughts. You read the some of the, uh, you know, the ideals for Buddhist monks is he is mindful when he puts on his robes and he is. Mindful, and he wherever he goes, he spreads loving kindness. And, and God, I can't do that. <laughs> so, so we tend to on the the level of a person egos, we tend to feel quite incapable of living up to that high standard. But that's where you need to know it is a standard only. That perfect bhikkhu is not a living creature. It's a it's an ideal, only. And uh, the perfect nun is is an ideal only. But experience of life is like this, and and our minds are like this. There's the condition, the unconditioned. There's a thought. There's not no thought. There's there's. Uh, Grasping and non-grasping, desire and desirelessness, and this knowing is 
is it transcending the perfect bhikkhu, the perfect zilajara? Because there's there's a there's the, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, and then the Sangha is there. But the Sangha is a living thing; it's not an ideal. It's you and me, it's people like us that practice the Dhamma. It's community. That's why you'll never get an ideal Sangha. There's, you can have an ideal of what a Sangha should be. But Sanghas are like this. This is Sangha now. Don't, don't try to figure out what Sangha is. Just reflect. This is Sangha here now. This, you and, and you and myself. And people all here. Sangha, the sense of community of people practicing the Dhamma. It's like this. This is what Sangha life is about. The way it is. Even in it, in it in its ideals and in its uh, realities and frustrations, irritations, it's this way. So then you're then you're 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 seeing sangha as as a living, breathing thing rather than as an ideal of how you know it should be like this and we shouldn't be like that and got to you know got to try to be better than this. And, and that person is very disruptive, and that <coughs> person is, is not, you know, isn't really all that trustworthy. And uh, it's not Sangha, isn't I'm sure in the Buddhist times it was better than this. <laughs> or I'm sure there's a monastery where, they have, where the monks and nuns are perfect. <clears throat> Go to the city of 10,000 Buddhists. I noticed some of you, when the, when the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis came over, you tended to see them as perfected people. And you see the bhikkhunis kind of there, floating along. Aren't they wonderful? Go and live there for a while. <laughs> if you want to see what Tonga life is like, it's not this kind of sweet nun floating along in a dream. Dear old monk practicing vigilantly, and it, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, human feeling, and, and uh, a lot of uh, you know, it's a lot of things that are not doesn't fit our ideal. Same here. <laughs> 